You are about to take part in a session from a Discipleship Bible School held at YWAM Richmond in the spring of 2022, and we are so grateful you are here. So much prayer went into every element of this course, from recruitment to content editing, and we are convinced you will leave this knowing God a little deeper. The Discipleship Bible School, or DBS, is an opportunity to survey the entirety of Scripture to discover God's redemptive plan for all of humanity. Over the course of 12 weeks, teachers explored the Bible section by section, not only to deepen students' understanding of what was written then, but reveal what we are being invited into now. If you like what you are hearing, visit ywamva.org to discover what courses we are offering, ways you can journey with our team, and other content created to help you know God and make Him known. Everything you hear was created as a step of faith by a team of YWAMers and volunteers who felt God inviting them to capture the DBS in its entirety, over 120 hours of content. If this content blesses you, consider supporting future schools and content by giving at ywamrichmond.org donate. Thank you so much for listening, and we can't wait for you to experience God today. Today, I want us to take a look at some questions that were asked of Jesus and his answer. The last week of his ministry begins in Matthew 24 and Mark 13 and Luke 21. And more attention is paid to this one week in his life than any other period in his life. And so while we've had um, episodes here and there through his ministry... This is the most intensive focus uh, that really goes day by day. Um, so we have seen this as the last week of his public ministry before the cross and resurrection. A lot of the liturgical churches identify this as Passion Week or Holy Week. I call it the last week, okay, leading up to the cross. Just to give a quick overview of the major events each day, uh, on Sunday was the triumphal entry. What, what we looked at as far as them shouting Hosanna. That, that event was on that Sunday. Uh, when they brought out the palms and laid them down as an additional recognition of his unique ministry, them praying out loud Psalm 118, which includes the Hosanna uh, Yahweh, O Lord, save us. Right after that, the Pharisees are upset. People are acknowledging that uh, this Hosanna is to the son of David, and they're recognizing Jesus in that role. After the entry, he goes into the temple briefly, and he makes an inspection of the temple without uh, any interruption of things. It's on Monday that he heads back to the temple, and on his way to the temple, sees the fig tree and curses it, goes into the temple, into the court of the Gentiles, and he drives out the merchants who are selling uh, sacrificial animals and changing money. And again, no problem with selling animals or money at the market downtown. The problem was that they were using up the prayer area, not allowing Gentiles to draw near to God. On Tuesday, he revisited that fig tree and identifies it as um, uh, God extending his favor and blessing upon those outside of Israel. There's the question of authority. By, by what authority do you do these things? There's the parable of the defiant tenants. A question about taxation. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar? A question about the resurrection from the Sadducees who did not believe in the resurrection. They raised that question about so-and-so is married and dies, and the wife marries the brother in the resurrection who she married to. And um, Jesus' response to them. Answer about knowing Scripture and knowing the power of God. They did not trust the scripture, and they did not understand the power of God, didn't understand that scripture was true, didn't understand the power of God to raise the dead. And then there's a question about the law. And Wednesday, there's the question about Messiah, who is he, what is he, warnings about the teachers of the law that Jesus gives, and Jesus sits and watches people. He does some people watching, and he watches a widow come by and with her two tiny coins, which probably represented about two hours of labor. She may have been cleaning somebody's house, got paid for two hours of labor, and gave it all in the temple. Uh, then that's followed by what we call the Olivet Discourse, when they leave the city and there's some questions about the, the stones of the temple and the beauty, and Jesus says they'll, they'll all be torn down. 
after that discourse, there's Mary's alabaster jar of perfume that is uh, poured out for him. Judas makes his bargain late Wednesday. On Thursday, there's preparation for the Passover, the Pesach. They're in the upper room for their meal. There's the foot washing. Declaration that one of you here will betray me. Uh, he makes the, the special attention at the table that this is my body, this is my blood at, at, the, at the larger table of the Passover Seder. He's got some powerful final teachings with uh, the, the boys at the table. They get up and they go to the Garden of Gethsemane where he has prayer and experiences agony. He is um, arrested. He is betrayed. He is interrogated by Annas. He's tried by Caiaphas. Uh, Peter denies him. Judas commits suicide. Jesus is condemned by the Sanhedrin. Pilate interrogates him, sends him over to Herod. Herod sends him back to Pilate. And he winds up taking the cross to Golgotha, and that afternoon is the crucifixion. And so those are the, the major events and sequences of Sunday through Friday of that last week. I want to focus on that uh, Wednesday afternoon, um, his teaching on the Mount of Olives, uh, also called the Olivet Discourse. It's Matthew 24 and 25, Mark 13, and Luke 21. And most of the details in those three Gospels follow pretty much the same sequence with some variation. Um, right after they had watched the, the widow put her money into the offering jar, Mark 13, 1 says, As he was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Luke 21.5 puts it this way. Some of his disciples were, were, were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. And so they're recognizing that, uh, that it looks great. And in their lifetime, they have seen some significant improvements to the building. The original temple, constructed under the supervision of Solomon, had, had been beautiful by description and from the Psalms. There's many comments about the, the, the nobility and excellence of the craftsmanship of the Solomonic Temple. Regrettably, that was destroyed totally in 586 by the Babylonians. They, they brought engineers in with oxen and ropes and logs, and they drug every boulder, every block, every stone of the original Solomonic Temple to the edge of the wall at the highest cliff and dumped it into the valley and burned anything that could burn. So that when they finished, it was just a big open area, a big open courtyard. Under the, the direction of Ezra and then Nehemiah, uh, when Zerubbabel was governor, after the, the return from exile, there was a reconstruction. It wasn't as grand. It, it, it was, they, they attempted to follow the same footprint as Solomon's temple. It wasn't as grand as Solomon's temple until the Herodian family. Uh, after the Maccabean revolt and they had cleaned it up to purify it, the Herodians, once they were appointed as the kings of the country, they, they were determined to make the place look as nice as possible. Not just the temple, uh, but the, the palaces. And uh, Herod the Great built a lot of really nice palaces. Uh, uh, one on the top of Masada, one uh, a, a hilltop called Herodium, a, a palace in Galilee, a palace in downtown Jerusalem. And um, he, he came under some pressure for having such a beautiful home, and the temple needed some rehab. And so he was determined that even if he personally didn't have a deep spiritual walk, it still was good for appearance, for, for his country to have a nicer looking temple. And so they devoted a lot of government money to the rehabilitation of that temple. Um, stone workers always working on it, improving it, uh, but especially the finishing touches of silver and gold leaf at key points around the building, especially at the peak um, edge, the lentils, um, the fascia boards, of the Holy of Holies as it rose up above the courtyard so that they, they put gold leaf around the top of that. So it, it could be seen for miles 
and people talked about it, people wrote about it. And so when the boys here are noticing the massive stones, the beautiful stones, the magnificent buildings, and the dedicated gifts, uh, people would bring um, uh, benches, uh, would bring uh, flower pots, would bring uh, appropriate urns and vessels as gifts to the temple and dedicate them for the use of the building, and they were impressive. And so that, that's what the guys are talking about. And so they, they are remarking, it looks great. It's really impressive. In downtown Jerusalem today, there is a model uh, that is a, a model that, um, the, that the Holy of Holies building there, the tall part, on, let's see, that's on the right-hand side of the screen. Uh, that stands up, I think that was about eight feet tall. Um, so I, th there were people, there were soldiers walking behind it. There was a little pathway that you could walk behind it, and there were Israeli soldiers walking behind it. And I waited for them to pass so I could get the photo without them in that. I've got another photo with the soldiers. It's kind of cool. But just for, for our use, um, that's... Uh, that, that reconstruction model is based upon the information from the first century describing uh, the particulars, the courtyard, the walls, and, and the construction. And so that, that is a model attempting to represent what the temple area looked like during that period. Uh, at the very, let's see, on your left-hand side, um, the, the terraced roof there is the edge of the courtyard next to the uh, Praetorian, where the Roman army had built uh, a garrison for the soldiers that could overlook the courtyard. And uh, so th that way they could keep security there, watching over everything that was happening there in the temple. Uh, here is another perspective. This is actually the perspective from the, the city portion of Jerusalem, looking at the temple toward the Mount of Olives. So the mountain on the other side of the temple is actually on the other side of the Kidron Valley. And that's an accurate uh, uh, painting indicating that the top of uh, the Mount of Olives in the village of Bethany is a little bit higher in elevation so that from Bethany and the top of the Mount of Olives, if you were sitting on the very top, you could look down into the courtyard across the valley. Uh, and uh, there are several passageways. Let me step back here. If this messes up the camera, I apologize. But um, uh, this was the easiest way to get into the temple right here, these steps. And archaeologists in our lifetime uncovered those steps. They were covered with debris from um, destruction. And so over the past 40 years, they have uncovered those steps, which would have been a primary entrance that Jesus would have used. There used to be a stairwell here with an arch and the marketplace that sold the sacrificial animals was right along this wall right here. The modern day prayer wall is right here. So if you ever see photographs or if you have been to Israel, what had been called the Wailing Wall or the Western Wall or the Prayer Wall is this area right here of the, the modern temple area. And so uh, this was a way to, to, to get all the way up to the platform here you'd walk in and still have stairs to go on the inside. So, and so there were multiple entrances to get into the temple. So the market for the animals was down here and for money changing, okay? Um, so when, when the, the fellows point out to him the beautiful stones, Jesus replies in Matthew 24, 2, he says, Do you see all these things? I tell you the truth, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. In Luke 21, 6, as for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. So not one stone left, every one thrown down, no more beautiful buildings. Now, I, I read a couple of excerpts yesterday about the messianic expectations that the Jews had from the pseudepigrapha. There's also a lot of writing in the ancient Jewish literature outside of scripture that shows what they believed about the temple. They believed the temple was as permanent as the world itself. 
that the temple was evidence of God's favor upon the Hebrews. To attack the temple was to attack the Lord God himself. If anybody attacked the temple, you, you're, you're offending Yahweh. The destruction of the temple would usher in the end of this world and the arrival of the Messiah. They believed that, that if the temple were destroyed, that would automatically bring the end of this age and the beginning of the age to come, and Messiah would be the one launching that. The end of the temple would mean the end of this present wicked age. And so the, those were the, the concepts that were very popular, not necessarily biblical, but it's like they have a hint of truth, but not full truth. Uh, here's a photograph I took from the Mount of Olives near Gethsemane, uh, looking down the Kidron Valley. So on the right-hand side is the Mount of Olives. On the left-hand side is Zion with the modern-day Al-Aqsa Mosque just out of view. And so I was just looking down the valley. But from that position, uh, you can walk into the Garden of Gethsemane or go back up the hill and go to the old village of Bethany or at the, the top of the hill be at the top of the Mount, Mount of Olives. So I've tried to give you some perspective because Jesus and the boys are going to leave the city, walk down the valley, Kidron Valley, walk back up the next hill so they can be on the Mount of Olives near Gethsemane, near the garden. But about 20 to 30 minutes pass. It's going to take 20 to 30 minutes to walk that distance. So Jesus tells them not one stone will be left upon another, and then they walk away, which gives time for the boys to be thinking, what does that mean? What's the significance? And for them to formulate any questions they have. Okay, so... Matthew 24, 3, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives. So th th this tells me, okay, it took 30 minutes to get to verse 3 of chapter 24 because now they're no longer at the temple with the guys looking at the stones. They are now on the Mount of Olives. And the disciples came to him privately and they said, um, uh, we've been chatting, Jesus, and we were wondering about that last thing you said. Uh, tell us, when will this happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? That's Matthew. Mark 13, 4 says, tell us, when will these things happen and what will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled? Luke puts it this way, teacher, they ask, when will these things happen and what will be the sign that they are all about to take place? So I, I think they're, the, the way it's recorded in those three gospels are very similar. What Matthew includes that the others don't is that last phrase, uh, of the end of the age. They're all asking when and what. Pay attention to that. When will this happen? When will these things happen? And what will be the sign? What will be the sign? What will be the sign that all these things are about to take place? But Matthew adds, and what will be the sign of the end of the age? Now pay attention to that. That's their question. Jesus provides an answer. This is a classic Q&A session where they ask some questions, and Matthew, Mark, and Luke each have at least two questions. Matthew has, a, has an addition on that second question, and it comes down to when and what. So, they're, they're, they're sitting opposite the temple on the Mount of Olives. They've got a bird's eye view. They can now look down into the courtyard. Uh, and they can see the movement of people and what's happening in the temple. So they're able to, to really admire the beauty. And uh, maybe in the setting sun, they can see you know, the sun glistening off of the gold leaf that's on the top of the building. As Jesus is sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew ask him privately, this is from Mark, when will these things happen and what will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled? Only Matthew's record divides that what interrogative into, into the two parts. But it comes out as this. What is the sign of your parousia? What is the sign of your coming? And, and, and if you're not familiar with the word parousia, that, that is the ancient Greek word that means bodily appearing, physically showing up, uh, arriving at your appointment, and you're there. It, it's a real word. It's not a figurative, metaphorical, spiritual sense. Because there are some people who have said, well, Jesus has come in our heart, and, 
and therefore he's, he's already come to us, in us. So that's the second coming. We should not be looking for any physical thing. Uh, that He's already in us, so that's the coming that it's talking about. But I, I can't embrace that because parousia doesn't allow it. And that's the word used in the Gospels and in the Epistles when Jesus talks about the coming of the Son of Man. He uses the word, the, the Gospels record the word parousia. When the Apostle Paul talks about the coming of the Lord in the clouds, he uses the word parousia. It happens dozens of times, and it really does mean physically showing up. And so what is the sign of your coming? What is, what is the sign of the coming? And what is the sign of the end of the age, the end of the, of the eon? Okay, That's what they're asking. When we interpret Jesus' answer, we had better pay attention to the questions that he is answering. As we study Jesus' answer, note the temporal phrases that Jesus will use in the next couple of chapters. The temporal phrases will answer when. When this happens, after this, before that, during this. Those are temporal phrases. They, they establish some timeline. The objective clauses that Jesus uses will answer the what question when he talks about a, a, a thing, a person, an event, and he uses objective clauses as opposed to temporal phrases. That's important. Um, so, Jesus is answering their questions. His answer must be interpreted in the context. They already have a preconceived notion, okay? And he winds up correcting their notion. that They have an idea of how it's going to play out and, and the importance of the temple. And in their mindset, the temple is too important to be destroyed. And if it is about to be destroyed, that means the end of the world as we know it. Okay? So if and when alien armies attack Jerusalem, the Lord would return and fight for them. And, and God would send an army down. They would be the destruction of Jerusalem would be the consummation of this present age and the end of the world. And their understanding, their, their, their simple Jewish eschatology was we live in this present wicked age, Someday the present wicked age will end completely and the age to come, age of blessing, age of the kingdom will begin. They never imagine an overlap of the two, which I think is what we've got, which is what I'm sure we've got because the kingdom has come. And so in one sense, the kingdom of God has already begun because that is in us. And so the coming age has started. It started at the resurrection of Jesus. But the present wicked age didn't end, which means we have an overlap of two kingdoms at the same time. The two ages, the present wicked age and the coming age of our king, overlap. Okay? And I've told you before, I have a problem with that. It is the root of our problem, the collision of, of two kingdoms that are in conflict that we live in. So here's the reality check. The Roman army besieged Jerusalem during their war with the Jews during a two-year period of 68 to 70 AD. After their victory, the Roman army burned everything that could burn on the Temple Mount. They hitched oxen with ropes to pull down every stone and they cleared the Mount floor. And we need to consider the gravity of the loss and the destruction of the Temple and the city of Jerusalem to the Jews as well as to the young church, to the Christians because they found so much of their identity in that building, in everything it represented. And so for them to lose it, that's a huge loss, and it's hard for them to wrap their head around, how can we lose that and it not be the end of the world? And then Jesus starts going into some details. Um, Twenty-four, verse five. Many will come in my name, claiming I am the, the Messiah, and will deceive many. Mark thirteen six says, Many will come in my name, claiming I am He, and will deceive many. Luke twenty-one eight. He replied, Watch out that you're not deceived, for many will come in my name, claiming I am He, and the time is near. Do not follow them. There would be plenty of false messiahs, false Christs. Uh, we know some of them in the New Testament. In Acts 8, there's a guy named Simon Magus, 
who bewitched some Samaritans, and he claimed to be the great one, Acts 8-9. In Acts 5, there's a guy named Thutis, uh, a false prophet, uh, and he drew big crowds, according to Acts 5-37, people following after him. In Acts 13, there's a guy named Bar-Jesus, not the same Jesus as we love, but a guy named Bar-Jesus. Um, uh, uh, Bar-Jesus probably meant that his father was Syrian, and Bar would be the Syrian Aramaic meaning son of. And so it's like um, uh, Svensson, Johnson, Olson, you know, son of. Okay, same idea. Um, so a guy named Bar-Jesus, uh, a false prophet confronted by the Apostle Paul. Uh, Josephus, the Jewish historian who lived at the same time as John the Apostle, uh, wrote that many messiahs led followers into the desert with promises of miracles, uh, including the Egyptian false messiah Thutis. And so Josephus names a guy Thutis who deceived many. It might be the same guy from Acts 5, or it might be another false messiah named Thutis. Uh, the church leader Origen wrote that uh, Dositheus claimed to be, to be the Messiah foretold by Moses, and a lot of Jews followed him. Uh, Josephus wrote that during the rule of Caesar Nero, while Felix was procurator of Judea, false prophets and messiahs were so rampant that they were being executed on a daily basis. Daily basis. So, um, people stepping out of line with Rome and claiming to be uh, the, a, a new king, a new messiah. And so uh, Jesus said, uh, many will come in my name and will claim I'm he or I'm the one. Uh, watch out. Do not be deceived. Uh, the time is coming near. Don't follow after them. Now, there's um, several statements. Uh, Luke 21.9 and Matthew 24.6. Uh, Luke 21 says, uh, when you hear of wars and revolutions, do not be frightened. Uh, Matthew says, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is to come. I told you about the Pax Romana yesterday, uh, from about 5 BC to about 55 AD. Relative calm throughout the Roman Empire, compared to what happened before then and what happened after then. A period of relative peace, uh, uh, strong laws, um, uh, maintenance of order, people could travel fairly safely, get about um, with, with some ease. And then in 56 to 67 AD, uh, Tacitus, the Roman historian, described there was a war in Britain, a war in Armenia, a war in Germania, in Gaul, in Parthia, in Athens, Africa, in Thrace. Uh, if any of you watched the movie Gladiator, that, that's, that, that's set uh, a, a couple of generations later. But they acknowledged there were, they were sent to go fight the war in Germania. And that, that's who Marcus Aurelius, the Caesar, is, sent his soldiers to. So I think that's where the movie opens up, is the war in Germania. And so um, between 56 and 67, in every part of the compass of the Roman Empire, they were having uprisings of population against Rome. And that really ended the Roman peace because they were sending soldiers all over the place and suspecting everybody. And so while they were fighting off the, the, the frontier battles, they were, the Romans were also suspecting ethnic groups that were closer to home rising up against them. Uh, repeated waves of civil disorder, insurrections, revolutions, and wars but Jesus points out, do not be frightened, such things must happen, but the end is still to come. These are not decisive proofs of the end, so do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, the end is still to come. Not decisive proof. Matthew 28, 7, nation will rise against nation and kingdom will rise against kingdom. Um, the Jews were experiencing friction with Rome. There was an uprising of Jews in Caesarea, near the Sea of Galilee, and 20,000 Jews were killed. There was an uprising in Scythopolis, a city in northern Galilee, 13,000 were killed. In Alexandria, 50,000 Jews were killed in, in what, what is now northern Egypt, in North Africa. 13,000 Jews in an uprising 
against Rome. Um, in Damascus, over in Syria, 10,000 Jews were killed. During, the 18, during 18 months, in 68 through 69 AD, there were four successive emperors who experienced violent deaths. There was a whole series of them who, who died violently, um, and three of them really suspiciously. Uh, the whole empire in increasing distress and insecurity and restlessness. Uh, back in 40 AD, Emperor Caligula ordered his statue erected in the temple in Jerusalem, and the, the Jews refused, and then they lived in constant fear that they would be slaughtered by him or by the next Caesar. And so Rome remembered, these Jews are, are troublemakers. Uh, they don't accept all of the Roman laws. Um, in Acts 11, 28, and 20, yeah, 27 and 28, uh, there was a prophet, Agabus. Uh, he, he foretold the famine that was coming. In 1127, during this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. Um, Luke 21, 11, there will be great earthquakes, famines, pestilences in various places, and fearful events and great signs from heaven. Um, and so Jesus g gives an accounting of all these different problems that are going to, to uh, be around. Uh, earthquakes. Um, during the crucifixion, there was an earthquake. Remember that? Uh, Matthew 27. At the resurrection, there was an earthquake. Matthew 28, 2. Uh, Paul and Silas were in the Philippian jail, and there was an earthquake, which helped get them out of jail. Uh, elsewhere, during Claudius' reign, during the 50s, there was an earthquake in Crete, Smyrna, Miletus, Chios, Samos. In Rome, uh, in the year 54 AD, the week that, that Nero assumed command as the next emperor, there was an earthquake. That, that was foreboding, because Nero was one wicked dude. Uh, in Laodicea, which shows up in, in Revelation chapter 3. A, um, an earthquake devastated the city in 60 AD and um, did damage to the nearby cities of Heropolis and Colossae. And that shows up in, in the letters to the seven churches of Asia. Um, uh, Seneca and Suetonius, both writers, marveled at the number and the frequency of the earthquakes throughout Asia. More than usual, they were acknowledging. Uh, throughout Syria and Macedonia in the 50s and 60s. And Jesus said, hey, nation rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, great earthquakes, famines, and pestilences in various places, and fearful events, and great signs from heaven. And he mentions it like, mm, it's going to happen. It's just going to be there. Um, fearful events and great signs from heaven. Uh, so Josephus explained, uh, Josephus wrote about some unexplained phenomena in the sky in Judea in 69 AD. He wrote that there was a comet that lasted a year, a comet that could be seen for a year. That's extraordinary. Uh, and um, astronomers have not been able to identify that. So whatever it was, it hasn't recurred. It hasn't been, a, it hasn't been like Halley's Comet, where it's on a cycle um, with the the Botmo comet, was it that other one that showed up a few, they're on cycles. Uh, but this one, not on a cycle, it was just there. A recurring light shining over the temple that they couldn't explain. Uh, many sightings of armies with chariots fighting in the clouds. Or somebody who was a little bit not sober, laying on the ground, looking at the clouds, seeing it, and if you've ever interpreted clouds, but. Josephus was reporting a lot of people saw cloud shapes like armies fighting. So he recorded that. And Jesus in Matthew 24, 8 says, uh, all of these are the beginning of birth pains. Just the beginning of the birth pains, not the real deal. Um, pains will be replaced by the joy of delivery when, when a mother does, in fact, have birth pains, the joy of delivery, I'm told, makes the pain less memorable. 
but my wife said it doesn't make the pain any less. So, Romans 8.22, we know that the whole creation groans and travails in the pains of childbirth until now. Uh, the, the groaning of creation over sin and the impact that sin has on us. Uh, we should not look at every international conflict or crisis or calamity as undeniable proof of the end of the world. For these things described by Jesus are just the beginning of his answer to their question. He goes on to say, uh, then you will be handed over to be persecuted and be put to death, and you'll be hated by all nations because of me. Now remember the, remember the two parts of the question. When will these things happen, and what will be the sign of your coming? Um, he's using a temporal expression, then. And it, it, I take then to be put in the context of when do these things happen? The stones being torn down? The buildings being destroyed? Not one stone being left upon another? Uh, he uses a, a temporal phrase like then. You'll be handed over to be persecuted and be put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. Um, He's letting them know being in Christ does not shield a person from harm and persecution. Being in Christ, in relationship with Christ, does not shield us from harm or persecution. Do I need to say that again? Jesus indicates that. Uh, and he's actually telling them that, that some of them are going to be persecuted. Some of them will be put to death and hated by all nations because of me. Um, some of the persecutions were limited in local. Acts 13 was a local one, Acts 14, Acts 16, um, in the different cities where they were proclaiming the gospel, and there would be an uprising of opposition. Um, the smithies, uh, the, the silversmiths, who rose up against the preaching against their silver statues, and uh, the, the gospel was cutting into their business because they were making statues, of the silver statues of the goddesses, and Fewer people were buying their statues because they were getting saved and following Jesus. And so they, you know, they made a stink and when they, they wanted to kill the evangelist. Sometimes uh, there were uprisings that were um, sanctioned by the authorities, uh, by the, the leaders, by, by Nero, uh, by the uh, local authorities, Acts 7, Acts 8, Acts 9. Um, and in Mark 13, Jesus said, you must be on your guard you will be handed over to the local councils. In, in Mark, he uses the word synedra, which is the Greek word for Sanhedrin. Uh, you'll be handed over to the local council, to the local Sanhedrin. You'll be flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. Um, so he's indicating that the Sanhedrin, local council, Supreme Court, uh, local synagogues will attack some of them. Uh, the Sanhedrin was outlawed in 70 AD. The Romans abolished the Jewish Supreme Court, the official Sanhedrin, Sanhedrin, and did not, they weren't able to operate. And so Jesus uses a word that was outlawed in 70, and he seems to be talking about something that's going to happen while it's still a legal counsel. And so I think he's talking to them about events that are going to happen in their lifetime, at least in regard to being handed over, being beaten, being persecuted, or sometimes being killed during their lifetime. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other, and many false prophets will appear and deceive people. Um, during the Roman siege of Jerusalem, famine and disease split families and broke loyalties. Um, many Jews blamed God for allowing that war to happen. Uh, false prophets. Uh, numerous epistles were penned in order to counter the deception of false teachers, false prophets. Uh, Galatians, Colossians, 2 Corinthians, 2 Timothy, 2 Peter, 1 John, Jude, all of them feature uh, a, a response against the false prophets and against the false teachers, equipping the early church to respond to false prophets. So uh, that wasn't out of the ordinary. It seemed to have been fairly common for people to present themselves as a prophet. I remember being in a church where this dude would come in and he was wearing this all-white suit, white shirt, white tie, called himself Prophet Henry. And he would come in and at, at, at the point, if there was any quiet moment in the service, he would just start barking out this loud, loud prophetic word. 
And um, sometimes it was just kind of really sketchy and, and symbolic and weird. And sometimes he was just flat out, he was saying things that were immediately contrary to scripture. And he was a self-proclaimed prophet. And, um, he was not very responsive to correction. It was just one of those. So I've run into some false prophets. I've also met some people that they, when they, when they spoke a prophetic word, they were spot on. God can really hear, and then there still can be people who take it upon themselves or who are really deceived. Um, and, and so Jesus is warning against deception. Deception, uh, and we find out deception by Judaizers, uh, those who tell new converts that were Gentile converts that they had to follow the Jewish law in order to truly be saved by the Jewish Messiah. Deceptions like the Gnostics who believed they had special insight and mystical knowledge that most people couldn't have. Uh, docetism, people who, who, were, who were caught up in um, a, a dualism of life and mentality. Uh, legalism, people who were just locked into the law, whatever that law was, and some of them just made up their own laws. And those are deceptions that were evident at the time and can still be evident in the world today. Because of, the wickedness, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. In Matthew 24, 15, Jesus said, This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So if people want to know what's going to happen just before the end, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the ethne and the, the Jesus, if he was speaking Hebrew, probably used the word goy or goyim. Matthew's gospel coming to us in Greek used the word ethne, which means people group. We get our word ethnic from. Ethnicity comes from that. It's a people group. It's a group of people who share uh, a, a common bond of ethnicity, uh, tribalism, language, tradition, expectation. Um, a, a, a sociolinguistic group. But the gospel of the kingdom ought to get proclaimed in the whole world as a testimony to every people group, every ethne. And then the end will come. And the, the word used is telos. Uh, telos was the marker at the end of the race. When they were running the athletic race, uh, what we would call the, the, um, the ribbon at the end or whatever barrier there is at the end, that's the telos, the goal. It's the object at the end that tells you you've arrived. Then the end will come, <laughs> the end of the race, the completion, the fullness. It indicates that the end will not come until the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God, is proclaimed to all people groups. That's the mission mandate. Um, that mandate remains in effect, and it should drive what we do. So if people are looking for a sign of the end of the world, that's an indicator that we're close. But the end will not come until God has said, okay, job is done. Now, how do we know when the job's done? Well, a lot of missionaries have classified every language and every people group, recognizing sometimes there are people groups within the same language. At one point, missionaries thought, well, you know, China needs a church. Let's go, let's go plant a church in China and we will have reached China as if one congregation worshiping in all of China would be enough. Thankfully, people look back and say, well, China is a complex place. India, how many people groups are in India? Brazil, how many people groups are in Brazil? Okay, and so um, missiologists have tried to classify people groups with the objective, not, I'm not trying to get legalistic about it, but trying to recognize uh, what tribal groups, what socioeconomic ethnic groups are there that that don't have a viable representation of a worshiping community that can be used by God as the instrument to take the gospel into that community. And so that, that, that's been the mission goal. So, and that's embedded in this teaching that Jesus is giving when they ask, when will these things happen and what will be the sign of your coming? Then he says, when you see standing in the holy place, the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. Matthew 24. Mark 13 says, when you see the abomination that causes desolation, standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Okay. 
um, Jesus moves from uh, general statements to a very specific detail. Uh, he, he discloses the distinct answer to the disciples' question. They asked, when will these things happen? He answered, when you see standing. I mean, it's a, it, he specifically has a phrase just like they have used. When will these things happen? And he answers, when you see standing. So let me remind you, temporal phrases, when Jesus uses when, that, that's a good key that he's actually dealing with the first part of their question. And the objective is the what part of their question. Now, this um, abomination that causes desolation is a quotation from Daniel. Uh, Daniel uses that, uh, that term three times in his prophecy. Daniel, in chapter 9, says, When the people of the prince will come to destroy the city and the sanctuary, the end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed. On the wing or on the side of the temple, he was set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. Now, that's from Daniel. And so Jesus' followers would have been familiar with the terminology, but they would have had different ways of interpreting it. Let's, let's first ask, what would Jesus might be talking about something that hasn't happened yet. Now, there are, um, there are different approaches to interpreting this, just so you know. Um, there's the futurist approach. The, the futurist approach interprets this and Daniel 9 as the great tribulation that will happen someday but has not yet happened. Uh, preterists and historists interpret Jesus' statement as happening in 70 AD in relation to the Roman army destroying the Jewish temple. Just so you know, General Vespasian and Titus led that two-year siege against Jerusalem, and they were responsible for destroying the city and the temple in 70 AD. General Vespasian had started the siege during the upheaval in Rome, and four Caesars were killed in that 18-month period, Vespasian became the next Caesar, so he left his army with Titus, and so Titus completed the siege. So the guy that had been trying to destroy the city became the next emperor. The Romans carried their standards with eagles and lions and bears into the temple area. Their standard, uh, every, um, um, every regiment of the Roman army had their own symbol. They had their mascot, a bear, a lion, an eagle. It was an animal. And uh, sometimes they would put it on their shields. They would carve it into the leather that they stretched on their shield. Some of them would have it embroidered on their vest. So they were wearing their team colors. Uh, but all of them had the pole that had their emblem, their carved image on it. And for some of them, the, the carved image was two feet high. So it was up on a, a nine-foot pole, and you got this statue up on the top of it. Uh, so that in battle, uh, the, the emblem carrier, the, the guy carrying the pole, would show all, everybody in his battalion, uh, th this is the group we're following. We're following our captain, and, and this is his symbol. The thing is, those were carved images. And to have a carved image in the temple was highly offensive. You know, even if it wasn't a worship symbol. And for many of the soldiers, it had nothing to do with deity. It, it, it symbolized what team they were playing on, which, which battalion or which brigade or which, which unit they were committed to. So in the thick of battle, they could look for their pole, and there's their pole. But, but having those poles brought into the temple was a way of making sacred space not sacred. It would be considered, in the Jewish eye, a detestable thing that causes the holy place to no longer be sacred because they were graven images. They were carved images. Now, inductive Bible study is uh, pray and observe. Read the words on the page. Observe what the page says. Observe what the me words mean in context. Try to make sense of the grammar. Uh, honor word meanings in context. And then sometimes you, you have to look at symbolism. Uh, you have to look at metaphor. You have to look at uh, poetry, prophecy, and then apply an interpretive approach. 
when it comes to the Olivet Discourse, this teaching from Jesus on the Mount of Olives, answering the two questions, there are different approaches that people take after they've done their observation. The futurist approach is that we're still awaiting fulfillment sometime in the future of everything Jesus said. That what Jesus said had nothing to do with his disciples. It had nothing to do with their life or their future. It has everything to do with ours. The preterist interpretation is that everything Jesus said had to do with his boys in their lifetime, in their generation, and there's nothing that we should expect to be fulfilled in the end time for us. The historist perspective, or sometimes called the combination perspective, is some oracles are already fulfilled in history, if they seem to be, while other oracles are still yet waiting to be fulfilled sometime in our future, if they seem to be. I belong in that last camp. Okay? I, I, I try to observe, and I've already tried to tell you, look for the when and look for the what, because that's what they ask. They think it all happens at the same time. Do you get that? They think the when of the stones being torn down and the what of the sign of the coming and the end of the age are simultaneous. That's what they think, and that's the problem. They misunderstand that their question has to be split by time, and Jesus does that. By the time he finishes his teaching, I'm not sure the boys got it yet. It may take some time for them to realize, okay, there's a gap between the two. The same way there was a gap in Isaiah 51, no, 60, Isaiah 61, when Jesus got up and read the scroll in the temple, Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointing me to preach the, the good news to the poor, sight to the blind, set the captives free, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and the time of God's judging Zion. Well, Jesus did not finish the sentence. When he was in the temple reading the scroll, he stopped in the middle of a Hebrew sentence, and the rest of the prophecy involved things that haven't happened yet in the world. You go back and read Isaiah 61, and the rest of the prophecy has to do with the future of Israel, not yet fulfilled, and the coming of the end, which hasn't happened yet. And sometimes there's a Hebrew sentence with prophecy in it, and time does not matter to the prophet who gave it, and whoever's interpreting it really needs prophetic perspective. Well, Jesus had prophetic perspective. He, rolled, he stopped in the middle of the sentence, rolled the scroll up, handed it back to the attendant, and then sat there and said, this is fulfilled in your hearing. Well, he stopped reading before he got to the part that wasn't fulfilled yet, so that he could say, what I just read today for you is fulfilled in your hearing. So, there are some prophecies. Same thing happens in Joel, the prophecy that Peter quoted on Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. Uh, Peter gets up, he quotes from Joel about the Spirit of the Lord coming, and your uh, old men dream dreams, young men dream visions, your sons and your daughters prophesying, and, and goes on with that for the outpouring of the Spirit. But Peter stops quoting from Joel when the prophecy of Joel involves the judgment that will come because that wasn't part of the message for Acts chapter 2, Pentecost. So there are prophecies in the Bible that have a dual fulfillment or a gap within the sentence itself. So what happened with the disciples here is that they're meshing two significant issues, the destruction of the temple and the end of the age and the coming of Jesus. They lump all that together as if it's got to all happen at the same time. That's why I explained to you their whole understanding of the temple was so grandiose, they couldn't imagine the world continuing to spin without the temple. Well, the temple got destroyed and the world didn't come to an end. So, and by the year 70 AD, most of the disciples are dead. So his statement about being persecuted and being killed, well, for, for at least half of them, that came true. They were, they were killed by the end of the temple. So uh, I, 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 my challenge to you is to observe carefully so that as you interpret Jesus' answer, you pay attention to the when will these things happen and what is the sign. Uh, the futurists are awaiting fulfillment in the future. Um, still to be fulfilled, Matthew and Mark, not related to 70 AD, 
they would, the futurist people say that the book of Revelation is an expansion of what Jesus taught, including the abomination of desolation and the seven-year tribulation. And they would say that Luke is about 70, while Mark, Matthew and Mark are not. The preterist perspective says that everything was completely fulfilled. The three accounts are parallel. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are parallel. Revelation is also done, so we should not read Revelation looking ahead in the future. It's all been fulfilled. And that the Son of Man comes spiritually, not literally. The combination approach is the historist where some oracles already fulfilled, other oracles still waiting to be fulfilled, and the three accounts are parallel, but they're dealing with the twofold question. When the stones are torn out, down, and what is the sign of your coming, and the sign of the end of the age. And therefore, the book of Revelation should also be interpreted with a combination approach. Prophetic oracles with a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. So, that's my proposal to you. Uh, the fact is, when you hear people teach, both from the Olivet Discourse and from the book of Revelation, you can pretty quickly tell, are they futurist, preterist, or trying to be historical in understanding, you know, how to examine it. Um, and I, I want to be kind and respectful toward those who interpret it differently than I do, um, but I'm convinced that we should let each word and each phrase say what it needs to say. Uh, before the Romans became the big dogs on the block, the rulers of the empire around the Mediterranean, the Jews were ruled by the Ptolemies. Talked about that yesterday. They stepped into that power vacuum when the Greek empire of Alexander crumbled. In 168 BC, that's when Antiochus Epiphanes violated the Jerusalem temple under the guise of suppressing a Jewish revolt against his Syrian neighbors. And under those false pretenses, the soldiers of Antiochus entered the temple compound, all the courtyards, they plundered the sacred vessels, they sacrificed the hog on the altar burnt offering, they sprinkled the broth from the soup of the unclean animals defiantly over all the holy ground for the sole purpose of defiling the sacred area and offending the Jews. They did that on purpose. And 1 Maccabees was written after those events, and 1 Maccabees records that. There came out of them a wicked root, Antiochus, surnamed Epiphanes, son of Antiochus the king, who had been in hostage at Rome, and he ruled in the 137th year of the kingdom of the Greeks. And he gives a detailed explanation of what happened. Um, uh, they set up the abomination of desolation upon the altar, and built the idol altars throughout the cities of Judah on every side, and burned incense at the doors of their houses in the streets. They tore in pieces the books of the Torah, which they found. They, they destroyed scripture. They burned them with fire. Whosoever was found with any book of the covenant, any committed to the Torah, the king's commandment was that they should be put to death and to pollute also the temple in Jerusalem and to call it the temple of Jupiter Olympius. So, the, the Maccabees, interpreted the act of Antiochus as fulfillment of the Daniel prophecy. And in fact, they, they elevated that and said, look, this is what Daniel talked about. The abomination of desolation is what they're doing in the temple right now. And that did impact many of the Jews. And they said, yeah, that makes sense. And many of the rabbis said, yeah, that must be the fulfillment of Daniel. I happen to agree with them. It looks like that's what Daniel was talking about. Could it have a dual fulfillment? Yeah, it very well could. It could have been fulfilled in the day of uh, Antiochus and, again, in the day of General Titus in 70 AD. Dual fulfillment. So, uh, what happened back there with the Maccabeans, it, it incited the Jews in a successful rebellion. The festival of Hanukkah came out of that, commemorating the final victory, including the miraculous oil that lasted a whole week. The Maccabean story of the abomination of causes desolation was viewed by many Jew Jews as the fulfillment of the Daniel prophecy, especially in the first century. So when Jesus mentions it, all the Jewish guys would be, yeah, I, I learned that story in, in synagogue school. And so it was recounted in Jesus' day to remind the people that the Jews should not let the holy place be desecrated again as a warning. Matthew 24, 16, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. When you see the abomination that causes desolation in the holy place, flee to the mountains. Luke 21, 20, when you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you should know that its desolation is near. Then, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out. Let those in the country not enter the city. So Jesus is saying, when it happens, leave town. Don't fight the Romans. Don't defend the temple. 
when you see the abominable thing that will desecrate or make desacred the holy place where it does not belong, then you should head for the hills. Uh, Luke mentions armies that surround, and the Roman army did lay siege to the city, and they blockaded all food and supplies from coming into the city at the time. Jesus even says, uh, let no one on the roof of his house go down to take anything out of the house. And, and the, uh, the way their houses were, um, uh, most of the homes had flat roofs because they didn't need to have a pitched roof. They didn't get that much rain. Uh, pitched roofs are great when you have a lot of rain. Where they live, uh, they actually would, would make their roof so that there would be a little, um, uh, a little rut along the edge. So when it did rain, they could capture all the water and get it into a, a, a bucket or a barrel outside the house. But they made their roof so you could walk on it. Uh, they would, they would um, lay the beams and then put the palm branches or branches like palms on top of it, take dirt and sprinkle some water and some um, uh, uh, silicon, and it was hardened in the sun. And it would become like a thin layer of concrete and, and then lay some more leaves on top of it. And you could actually put chairs on it and they could sit on the roof. Most of their homes had the stairs outside the wall. So if you're on the roof and you see the abomination of desolation, you see the armies coming, the advice is don't even go to the trouble of running down the steps and going back into the house. Instead, grab your family, grab your kids, head for the hills. Get off the roof and leave. Leave in a hurry. It's, it's reminiscent of the Exodus. When, when the death plague came and God told the people, you know, don't even take time for your bread to rise, the unleavened bread thing. And so it, it's reminiscent of uh, when you see the sign, get out, just run. When the army advances, you should retreat. Leave the city. Don't get trapped with the gate shut. Leave Judea. The Romans marauded and raped and murdered all among the farmlands of Judea. Leave the roof. If you're caught while relaxing or resting on the roof, don't waste time returning to the living quarters to save your silverware or your family heirlooms. Just go. Uh, let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. You're in the field. There's your cloak on the other end of the field. There's the hills. Run to the hills. Forget your clothes. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. The difficulty of travel. Uh, the conditions are going to make it hard to flee. Uh, pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath. Uh, during winter, uh, the, the dry river beds might have water rushing through it. It's going to make it tough to pass. Uh, if, it's on the, if it's on the Sabbath, uh, if you're a religious Jew, you would be compelled by your sensitivity to restrict your travel to 2,000 paces. Um, not that the Old Testament demands that, but that's how many of the, of the first century Jews interpreted We can't walk more than 2,000 paces on the Sabbath. That's not a law of God. That's one of the oral laws. And so pray that your flight doesn't happen on the Sabbath because then you're going to feel constrained. I can't walk more than 2,000 feet, okay? Because of their scruples about uh, getting away would jeopardize their lives. So, any questions on that so far? Okay, just trying to set the stage here. In 66 AD, the Roman general Cestius Gallus, so this is uh, four years before the end. In 66, there was an army there. Cestius Gallus had an army, came from Syria to Jerusalem to suppress the Jewish uprising that reached a breaking point in September of 66 and he laid siege to the city for nine days. And at the end of nine days, he got called to the coast. And so he moves his army away to deal with another problem. Well, uh, the, the, the nine-day siege was not, not long enough to starve anybody. Uh, it didn't cripple the uprising. The members of the Jerusalem church, by means of an oracle, were given by revelation to acceptable persons there, ordered to leave the city before the war began and settle in a town in Perea called Pella. And so Eusebius, when the church fathers said during that first siege, there was a prophecy in the group of people who followed Jesus when they met in Jerusalem, telling them, when you see this happens again, get out. If you see an army coming next time, don't, you, you, you fail to do what, what we were supposed to do. When we see the army, was, Jesus said, leave. Well, the army came, laid siege. Thankfully, they were only here nine days, and then they left. If it happens again, leave. And that, that was the word that was given, uh, and, and, uh, and that story was told repeatedly in the Jerusalem church. This is not recorded in the book of Acts. This would have been after the book of Acts, so it's not part of Scripture, 
but it's a part of the history of the Jerusalem church. Matthew 24, 21, Jesus goes on to say, there would be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. And the, the Greek word is thlipsis. Uh, thlipsis can be translated tribulation, distress, anguish, persecution, hardship, affliction, severe trial. Um, the Jewish revolt began in 66, and the Romans did some small actions against it until in 68 they said, we're just going to send a massive army in and suppress this. Uh, it, that war is described by Josephus in, a, in his book called The War of the Jews, uh, Bella Judaica. Uh, in late 68 AD, General Vespasian moved upon Jerusalem to suppress everything. There was anarchy, terrorism, disease, famine, and in the spring of 70 AD, the soldiers entered and torched the temple. 